Well, good morning. If you have your Bible or Bible app with you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 verse 31 and 32 is where we're going to be spending our time this week. Last week, we um, began looking at the issue of sex and lust, and this week, we're going to really continue that trend and that theme by looking at divorce and marriage. So if you have your Bible open, let me read it for us, and then we'll pray together. This is God's word to us, his people. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Heavenly Father, once again, we need you to soften our hearts and to enable us to receive your word. Father, your word is powerful. It has the ability to transform lives. It, it's able to save marriages and bring the, the dead back to life. And so, I, Lord, I pray, would you do that work right now? God, give me a sensitivity towards your people this morning. Lord, I know there are people all over the spectrum right now. Lord, for some, their marriages are flourishing. They're celebrating anniversaries, Lord. And for others, they feel like any moment it could just come falling down. So, Lord, speak to each of us wherever we are at. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are few experiences more traumatizing than going through a divorce. Divorce affects you. It affects your children. It affects your relatives, your friends. I can still imagine and, and see the tears running down the faces of those who have been through divorce. Divorce, in many ways, is more painful than the death of a spouse. You see, the, the death of a spouse is clean pain, but divorce is dirty pain. The divorce process comes with moral pain and hurt and anger and outrage there's hatred, there's wounds that are intentionally caused as opposed to passively caused in the death of a spouse. Divorce is, in many ways, an attack on your personhood. You deal with low self-esteem. You feel as though you're not good enough. You wonder, you have doubts of what could have been, and then you have fears of what will ever come now. You wonder if you'll ever be able to love or be loved again. Compounding this is the fact that normally those who go through a divorce then feel isolated and alone. Not only has their spouse separated from them, but their loved ones distance themselves. 
And so they go through this process all by themselves. Their tears fall with no one else in the room. Pain is lengthy. It's dragged on by court battles. The system is set up so that you're intentionally attacking and degrading your spouse. You're trying to get as much as you can out of them. And then maybe worst of all is that right in the middle, so often in the crosshairs of fire is our children. Children deal with so much emotional baggage from divorce. They feel either guilty they, they wonder and they, they question whether or not they could have saved their mommy and daddy's marriage. Or if they don't feel guilty, they feel rage. They're angry that their mom and dad couldn't figure it out and keep the family together. Studies show that children who go through divorce are at greater risk of illness they are more or they are less likely to graduate from high school. They endure greater stress. They are more likely to get divorced themselves. They live shorter lifespans and they are more susceptible to poverty. One estimate in the United States said that if divorce rates today were like that in the 1960s when the uh, no-fault divorce law had been passed. One estimate says there would be 750,000 less children repeating grades. There would be a million less suspensions. There would be 600,000 less children receiving counseling. And there would be 70,000 less suicide attempts per year. There's no doubt why when you think that nearly half of our marriages go through divorce, that there is so much pain in our society. Now, I believe there are two responses that we need to have towards those who are going through this process. The first one is we need to love them. You see, when you go through the divorce process, you begin to believe these, these lies. You begin to actually disbelieve certain aspects of the gospel itself. And so we're called to love them. Those who go through divorce often feel like they've committed the unforgivable sin. And so we're called to love them and say, no, you are lovable. You are forgiven this is not what Jesus is like. Jesus does not leave you just because someone else did or you did. We're called to love those who go through divorce. And the second response we need to have is we need to condemn divorce. We need to speak up and say that this is not God's design. This is not the way God has intended for life to flourish Divorce does not properly display the love that he has for his church. It muddies the water. This morning, I want to look at our passage in two points. The first one is the permanence of, of marriage. And the second one is the exception for divorce. So firstly, the permanence of marriage. If you want to sum up God's view and attitude towards divorce in the Old Testament, you can boil it down to one word, hate. He hates it. 
It, it, it disgusts him. In the book of Malachi, we find a situation where the southern nation of Israel, Judah, had begun to distance and abandon their relationship with Yahweh. We find that men were marrying wives who worshipped foreign gods. And this marriage, this process of marrying women who worship foreign gods was in many ways beginning to divide their own allegiance to Yahweh, the one and only true God. But what made things worse is that to marry these wives, they were divorcing their own. And so listen to what God says in the book of Malachi. Malachi 2 verse 13 says, then this second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The Lord, the God of Israel says that he hates divorce. He hates divorce and him who covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God hates divorce. And then fast forward a few hundred years and Jesus arrives in the scene and he begins to continue what was said in the book of Malachi. He says, look, if you divorce your wife, He's also speaking to wives. Wives, if you divorce your husbands, even if you give them a certificate of divorce, you are making them commit adultery. When they go off and have sex with someone who is not their original spouse, they are committing adultery. And so Jesus condemns divorce, but but more than that, he's also wanting to re-articulate God's original design for marriage. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is supposed to be a reminder of two other mountaintop experiences. The first one is the one we're probably more familiar with, and that is the giving of the commandments at Mount Sinai. It was on a mountain that Jesus gave the Ten Commandments where he says, do not commit adultery. But there was also an event that took place on a mountain, and that's the creation story. The Garden of Eden was on a mountain. We know that because in the book of Ezekiel, it says that the waters flowed down from the garden. It only flows down because it is on a mountaintop. And so Jesus, by speaking to now Israel on this mountain, this Sermon on the Mount, he is rehashing God's design for marriage at the creation story. And so you have to go to Genesis chapter 2 once again to find out what God intends for marriage. Genesis 2, starting in verse 18, says this. 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, so I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground of the Lord, God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven, and he brought them to a man and s- to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, so he's seen every animal, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called women, because she was taken out of a man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. What were the two aspects of the covenant? What were the the two aspects of the agreement between a husband and wife that God established here? Well, the first one is that these two are to hold fast to one another. They are to hold fast to one another. They are to be together forever. Famously, one music star was asked, how come she was still married? To which she responded, probably because neither of us have died yet. That, that, that's, that's the vow, right? That's the vow we make at our marriage ceremonies. Till death do us part. We are to hold fast together until death takes one of us home. But a marriage covenant isn't just that you would hold fast to each other. You also are to be one flesh. One flesh. This alludes to the relationship that a husband and wife has sexually. Sex is to unite these individuals. So that as Malachi says, in many ways, they share one spirit. They are united not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually through sexual intercourse. Sex has made them one. And so a husband and a wife should not try to separate themselves from each other. Jesus actually affirms this explicitly in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, starting in verse verse 4, says this. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, so the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. Marriage is permanent, and so you should not try to split what God has superglued. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about a covenant. We said that a covenant was more intimate than just a legal agreement. But we also said that a covenant is more binding than merely an emotional agreement. And what I said I wanted to show this week is that a covenant is more intimate precisely because it is binding. A marriage is more intimate because it is binding. Now, this seems counterintuitive to our culture. 
Our culture says things like, well, I love you. I know what I feel. Why do I need to fill out a bunch of paperwork to prove that? It isn't my emotions, isn't my just display of love in the day-to-day enough? Why go through all this marriage ceremony nonsense? Why make it official? Why put this into covenant form? See, culture makes love and emotions the epitome or the essence of marriage, but God says that covenant is the essence of a marriage. It's covenant that enables a marriage to flourish. So, so let, me, let me try to show you this in two ways. Again, firstly, a relationship is more intimate because it is binding. If a partner, not a spouse, but if a partner can leave at any moment, that actually hinders your ability to be intimate with each other. If at any moment your partner can leave you, then what you need to do every moment of your life while you are with that individual is marketing. You're marketing yourself. You have to always put your best foot forward because if they see one of your flaws, if they see one of your shortcomings, if they see your weakness and your failures, well, they can just leave you like that. So this is why in the New York Times, when one cohabitating girl was interviewed, she said this. She said, I felt I was on a multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife. Every day it was like an audition. I always had to be on my best behavior. I could never show him my weakness. But what if you were in a covenant? What if you made an unbreakable commitment to your spouse? Well, then you know that they will stick by you. You know then that you can be yourself. You know then that you can be vulnerable. You can expose your weaknesses to the ones you loved because they're going to hold on to you. They're going to stick by you. They won't just abandon you. And then you can actually work through those difficulties and those emotional scars. And that actually draws you closer together. We face what one author has called the porcupine dilemma. The porcupine dilemma. You see, we, we are like porcupines in many ways. We, we walk around with these needles, these failures, these wounds, these hurts, and and we want to be close. We, We want to draw close to someone, but we know that if we get too close, we will prick them. Our needles will stab them. And so what do we do? We distance ourselves from them. Well, marriage, what does marriage do? Well, marriage doesn't necessarily take away those needles. Marriage doesn't even make it so that you don't get hurt when you get pricked by those needles. What marriage does is it gives you the space. It gives you the climate. It provides you with an environment and a promise to heal those wounds, to work through those pains that you may have caused someone else. A covenant increases the relationship to intimacy Covenant increases intimacy in a relationship. Secondly, 
A covenant increases the stability in a relationship. It increases the stability in a relationship. In a relationship. You see, some research has showed that marriages, when they say they're unhappy, if those marriages stay together for another five years, two-thirds experience greater happiness than those who have started over. Two-thirds experience a greater happiness than others who decide to start afresh ever experience. You see, what is it that enables you to get through those hard times? What is it that enables you to work through the pain and and come out on the other end in a more joyful, happy state? Well, it is a piece of paper. It's a covenant. It's a promise that you make. A covenant is like Odysseus's mast. In the famous myth, Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus is traveling home to be with his family. He longs to see them, but what he knows, what he comes to discover is that as he's making this trek by sea, he will pass a part of the water where there are these mythical creatures called sirens. What these sirens do is they chant the most beautiful, enticing, and luring song imaginable. That song, that enticement is intended to draw those sailors to themselves where they can kill them. That, that is what these sirens want to do. They entice so that they might destroy. And so what does Odysseus do? Well, he says, I am tying myself to this mast. I am making sure that as I travel home, even though I may hear this voice, even though I may be tempted to go astray, abandon course, jump ship, if you will, I will not be able to because I will be tied to this mast. See, what does Odysseus decide? He doesn't decide to get through by mere willpower. He decides to get through by commitment. He commits even before he faces the hardship. We need an Odysseus mast. We need a promise that will get us through the hard time so we might experience greater joy on the other end with our family and loved one. See, God designs marriage for our good. Marriage is not arbitrary It's actually there to help us flourish as human beings. And so let me plead with you. If right now you are feeling like you want to jump ship. If you are feeling as though the loved one is hurting you too much. I plead with you. Stay true to your commitment. Grab a hold of that covenant that you have made and seek help. Seek to bring loved ones in, to bring friends in, to bring a pastor in or an elder in or a counselor in if need be. Do whatever you need to do in order to make it through the hard times. Marriage is intended to help you flourish. But there's one more reason why marriage is permanent. And that's because marriage is intended to display the relationship that Jesus has with his church. The church in the Bible is called the bride of Christ. 
And the love that a husband has for his wife is intended to display the love that Jesus has for his wife, the church. This is why we read these famous words in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 29, says this, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When we become united with Christ through faith and repentance, the promise that Jesus makes us is that he will never leave us. He will never abandon us. His commitment to love us is eternal. It's permanent till the end of time. That's why Westland Baptist Church, you need to fight for your marriages. So much is on the line here. Most of all, biggest of all, greatest of all is your witness to this world of what the gospel looks like. That Jesus loves his bride and that he's never leaving her. So how does this work if you're single? Right? That's, that's maybe a question that we should be asking. So, so let me speak to the singles for just a second. And by singles, I mean those who are single but want to be married. I mean those who are feeling the calling to be single for the rest of their lives. I, I mean those who are widowed, and I mean those who have gone through a divorce. What does this look like in our life if we are single? Well, let me give you two things. The first thing that you're called to do is to support marriages. You have just as much of a role in helping our church display the love of Christ for his bride than those who are married. You can do that by supporting them in their own marriages, by praying for them, by looking after their children so that they can go out on dates and invest in their own relationships. You can do that by checking in. Do whatever you can to support the marriages in this church. But secondly, your singleness displays another aspect of Christ's love that we need. You see, if marriage displays the depth of Christ's love for his church, well, singleness displays the breadth or the width of Christ's love. By your singleness, you show that Jesus is able to love people of all colors, of all social classes. You proclaim that Jesus is gathering in the nations to himself. That is what you display by your singleness, by loving not just one person, but by loving everyone who comes across your path. Let me actually give you one more thing. Your singleness doesn't just display the breadth of Christ's love. Your singleness also displays the superiority of Christ's love. You, by being single, by just being satisfied where you are right now, proclaim that Jesus is more satisfying than the love of another woman or man. 
You, by postponing sexual intimacy here, are proclaiming that eternal intimacy is good enough. It's not just good enough, it's better. It's able to be longed for more than whatever else you might experience here right now. Christ is ultimately the one who satisfies. That's why in the book of John, when Jesus begins to speak to a woman in Samaria. Do you remember the story, right? He, he comes to her and, and she's coming to the well and, and he says, can you please give me some water? And she says, sir, what are you doing? You're a Jew. You, you don't speak to Samaritans. And Jesus says, well, okay, well, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink of water. And she says, Jesus, you, you don't have a jar, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get water from the well? To which Jesus says, I can give you water that if you drink, you will never thirst again. I give you water that will satisfy you for forever. And she says, give me this. Give it to me. And what does Jesus say? Go call your husband. A little bit of a, non sequitur doesn't doesn't really follow she goes sir i'm not i'm not married jesus says that that's right you've had five husbands actually and the man you're with right now is not your husband what's jesus saying jesus is saying look you are looking to a marriage to satisfy you when really you need to look to me i give you the water that leads to satisfaction By being single, that is what you proclaim. You show this world that Jesus is far more satisfying than sexual, relational love of a spouse. Don't waste your singleness. And if you are married, fight. Fight to show the faithfulness of God. Fight to show that Christ's love is permanent. Well, secondly... The exception for divorce. The exception for divorce. The question is, if marriage is intended to be permanent, well, is there an exception? And if there is an exception clause, why is there an exception clause? Well, we're given quite clearly the answer to the first question. There is an exception clause. Verse 32 says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, this is Matthew 5.32, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. You are not to divorce, except in cases of sexual immorality. To understand the way the first century, Jesus' contemporaries, would have understood this, you need to go back to the one and only passage in the Old Testament that speaks about the possibility for divorce. This this gets a little bit complex, but please, I I beg you, please just try to hang on, just just dive in, just, just pay attention. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 4. It says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, 
If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and then she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that it is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land, and the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So, so in case you missed the situation, this is how it goes. A husband marries his wife. All of a sudden, he finds, the Bible says, some indecency in her. We'll look at that phrase in a second. But he finds something that displeases him. And so what does he do? He divorces his wife. He writes her a certificate of divorce. Here you go, gives it to her. That certificate then enables her to get married to someone else. And so that's what he, she does. She goes and she marries another man. Well, then, all of a sudden, that man either divorces her or that man dies the first husband cannot remarry her. You, you cannot remarry a wife that you rightfully divorce, the Bible says. Now, the reason God gave this command through Moses was in order to protect the vulnerable. It was to protect the vulnerable. You see, by giving someone that certificate of divorce, you were giving them permission to remarry. There, there's no such thing as rightful divorce and also not being allowed to remarry. Divorce certificates in that day would have read something like this. Behold, you are free to marry any man. You are free to marry any man. And the reason that was important is because a woman may need another husband in order to ensure she is financially protected. She, she needs a husband to provide for her. So, so God gives that command to protect the vulnerable, but God also gives that command to ensure that you do not financially benefit off of divorce. So that you do not financially benefit off of divorce. You see, some indecency, if, 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 if a husband divorces his wife for some indecency, then he would get to keep whatever she financially contributed to the marriage. So he writes her a certificate of divorce. She, he keeps her share. She, she goes away actually empty-handed. Well, all of a sudden, she marries someone else. If that husband dies now, so her and her new husband are together, that husband dies, well, due to death, she actually gets to keep his wealth. And so God's saying, first husband, hey, don't even think about it. You don't get to bring her back now just because she got a wad of cash. You can't financially benefit off of divorce. You cannot profiteer. You can't treat your spouse like she's a prostitute. Just ship her off, have her lay with someone else, get rich, and bring her back. You can't treat her like that. You are not to be a pimp, if you will. Now, Jesus' contemporaries... The Pharisees and the rabbis, the kind of religious rulers of this day, took these verses in Deuteronomy, which were intended to protect the vulnerable, and they twisted it to benefit themselves. There were two thoughts. The first thought came from Rabbi Hillel. 
Rabbi Hillel emphasized the aspect that if she does anything, or if she does some, our Bible says, if she commits some indecency, then divorce is permitted. So really, if she does anything you dislike, you could divorce her. She just has to do something, right? Um, Kind of examples of this is if she let her hair down, if she accidentally spun around and showed her ankles, you could divorce her. If she gave a negative comment about her mother-in-law, you could divorce her. Or really, if you just found someone better. So really, you just find anything you want and you just write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's what Rabbi Hillel said. Now, Rabbi Shammai was a little bit more conservative. He emphasized the indecency part about some indecency. He said, no, no, no. The indecency has to be that she commits sexual immorality. She, she has to commit adultery. She has to sleep with either another married man or someone else who is single. So the question is, and that's what Jesus agrees with, why adultery? Like, why is adultery an acceptable reason to get divorced? Well, the answer is because you are, remember Genesis, you're breaking the covenant. Remember what the covenant said? The covenant was you are to be a one flesh union. If all of a sudden your spouse commits adultery, she's broken the one flesh union. She's, she's given of herself to someone else, or he is given of himself to someone else. And so by committing adultery, you're breaking the covenant. That's why the only other reason in the Bible to get divorced is if you are abandoned. If your spouse abandons you, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, right? If that holding fast agreement of the covenant in Genesis chapter 2 is broken, then you can also get divorced and remarried. Now, When Jesus' disciples hear this, they are shocked. They they are astonished. Even though Jesus actually agrees with the more conservative and far less popular Rabbi Shammai, even though he agrees with him, the disciples are still shocked. Why are are they shocked? Well, go, go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. I read part of this before, but I want to keep reading for us. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. It says, And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Aha, we know this though, Jesus. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciple said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus, this thing you just told us seems so shocking and so difficult that it just feels like we shouldn't even get married at all. Why do they respond like that? Well, listen to what Jesus said. 
They ask him, hey, didn't Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? What does Jesus respond with? He said, no, no, no. Moses allowed it. He allowed it. He doesn't command you to divorce. He allows you to divorce. See, what Jesus says in that moment is that even if you have a reasonable clause to separate, to divorce and remarry, it is better not to. It's better to reconcile. It is better to forgive. Reconciliation is preferable over divorce. Even in the grave case of adultery, seek reconciliation. That's why this passage follows on the heels of the parable of the unforgiven servant. The, the, the plea, the call, the command is to forgive at any cost. So here's a summary. Jesus provides a situation where an individual can divorce and remarry. It is when the marriage vow of a one flesh union is broken. However, a preferable response is reconciliation and forgiveness. Whenever this is possible, whenever genuine repentance takes place, it is always better to forgive. One should constantly aim to continue the marriage covenant, even when one spouse breaks it. So, this leads us to some rapid-fire questions. I can't answer all the questions, but let me just give you four quick questions we might ask. Right? Because this is personal. Some of you are living this right now. This is real to you. So let me ask some questions. Can I remarry if my spouse dies? The answer is yes. 1 Corinthians 7 makes it crystal clear. It says this. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So yes, go ahead, remarry. It's not a problem if your spouse dies. Secondly, what do I do if my unbelieving spouse decides to leave me? Right? I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer. I trust the Lord, but my, my spouse doesn't. And he or she just says, I'm out of here. I'm gone. What, what are you supposed to do? Well, Paul also says in the book of 1 Corinthians to let him or her go. You're called to be at peace with her him or her. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 13 says, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. You're to seek peace. If they want to go, you're not to fight any longer. Let them go. Thirdly, what do I do if my spouse is abusive? I would just say this, you need to get space. You have to put some space between you two. I don't believe the Bible allows you or grants you permission to divorce, but I do believe you are called to put some distance between yourselves, to find a safe environment. The only way in many situations that you can reconcile with an abusive spouse is if there is some distance between you two. So bring in the authorities if need be. 
I'm not saying that you need to take their physical abuse. Please do not hear me say that. But you need to still fight for your marriage. You never know. Even if you have been separated or distanced for 10, 20, 30 years, there is still hope of coming back together. And lastly, what do I do if I've been wrongly married? What do I do if I've been wrongly remarried? I think the Bible's command is to stay together. Stay together. I I think your new marriage, though it may have begun wrongfully, is still legitimate. It's still legitimate. Remember, what does Jesus say to the woman in Samaria? He says, you've had five husbands. Look, look, those husbands are legitimate. Those are real marriages. So while the second marriage is wrong, it started out wrong, it can still be redeemed. God can still use that marriage. That marriage can honor God. A godly marriage is still possible. Some of the most godly marriages have begun wrongfully. Serve the Lord in that place, in that new relationship to the best of your ability. So let me end like this. Why? Right, that's still the question we haven't answered. Why does God permit divorce and remarriage if marriage is intended to display the permanent relationship that Christ has for his church? Why is there an exception clause? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Doesn't that contradict? Well, maybe not. You see, what if you were wronged? What if your spouse did commit adultery against you? What if you had legitimate reason to divorce and remarry, but yet you said, no, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to stay together. I'm going to still fight for this marriage. I'm going to still uphold my end of the covenant. Is not that maybe a clearer, A better, a bigger, a more glorious picture of what Christ has done. Right? Christ's love for us is not that he just promises to never leave us. It's that he promises to not leave us even when we wrong him. Even when we sin against him. Even when we hurt him and devastate him and commit the most abhorrible sins possible. Even when we commit spiritual adultery day in and day out. Christ says, I'm holding fast to you. I'm not leaving. I will forgive again and again. See, when Christ calls us, When he decides to love us, he doesn't just choose to bear the porcupine's needles. He bears the iron rods and nails that go through his hands and feet. When Christ chooses to bear with us and endure our sin, he doesn't just tie himself to the mast. He ties himself to the cross where he takes not just the wind and the rain, but he takes the saliva as men and women spit on him. He takes the very wrath of God being poured out on him. He forgives the very people who have hung him there. That's why we fight for our marriages, 
even when we can leave. Jesus travels through death itself so that we might be forgiven, so that we might live eternally, so that we might live in perfect harmony with him. On the other side of death is resurrection. That is the picture of marriage. Let me pray for us. God, this is real. Lord, I know that there are some listening to this who are feeling all of their former emotions, their anger, their rage, their sorrow, and their hurt well up in them again, Lord, because they have lived this. Father, I pray, would you please comfort them Would you please draw near to them and empower them with your grace in a fresh way? Lord, show them that you have the ability to empower them for a new obedience. Father, I pray that if there are some of us who have done wrong, who do bear some of the guilt, Lord, would we own it? Would we come before you and repent of our side of the wrongdoing? Lord, I pray as well for our marriages, for the marriages in this church. Father, I pray for those who are flourishing. Would they continue to wonderfully display the permanent love that Jesus has for us? Father, bless those marriages. May they experience greater intimacy. Father, I pray for those who are single. Father, would they be content with where you have them right now? Lord, help them to show this world that you are the one who ultimately satisfies. Not sex, not the love of a man or a woman, but Christ and Christ alone is able to satisfy. Father, and I pray for those who are divorced. Father, I pray that you would show them that you are forgiving that you are a gracious and merciful God, Lord, that you love them still, that you are holding on to them. Lord, help them to disbelieve the lie that they are unworthy of your love just because someone else said that. Lord, you are a greater lover. You are a greater friend. Lord, show them this truth. Father, I pray for those who have been divorced and who are now remarried. Father, in this new marriage, would you do a great and mighty work? May this marriage be a godly marriage that points to the beauty of Christ. Father, we need this. It's by your grace and grace alone that we will live this out in our lives. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.